0: evoking the feeling of that particular day in 1930, and this monumental race.
1: That feeling never goes away. If you're winning a maiden 50, if you're winning a claiming 4,000, or I mean, heck, here we are uh, 15 years later, and uh, unbelievably, I, I won a Kentucky Derby.
2: Welcome back to another episode of the Amplify Horse Racing Podcast. It is Triple Crown season. We've got a great episode talking about the Triple Crown. Before we get into it, though, Anise, Caitlin, how's it going?
3: Happy, basically, summer. I mean, it's past Memorial Day at this point, so it counts for me to say summer, and it feels like summer. It's in the 80s today. I'm looking out my window. It's a beautiful day in Lexington. Gonna play some polo later. Can't wait. And Caitlin we're, we know that you're already baking in the heat of Texas
4: <laughs> yeah we've been fortunate it really I mean may um didn't get us too badly but uh we've had a couple of days in the 90s and today's one of them so <laughs> Oof. but getting ready to head to New York next week for um the Belmont Stakes I'll see you there woo Yay. so excited um yeah and then anise those photos of you playing polo were like god a
3: <laughs> that's so funny I, oh my goodness I feel like I look way more professional than I currently feel but <laughs> well um... I wish
4: somebody I wish I had somebody to take photos of me
3: <laughs> riding where I look more professional
4: than I feel <laughs> so that's <funny>. well done <laughs>
3: Well, thank you. It was an absolute blast. I'm addicted at this point. It's now my, um, I'll say that racing and polo are going to be my co first loves um, in in terms of equine activities. So I'm really excited to have that in my life at this point. And uh, Caitlin, I know you've been really active showing recently. How's that going?
4: It's been amazing. Um, so, Jennifer, I have a an off the track thoroughbred, nice. and I now we I've had him uh, for about two and a half years. Well, no, wow, well, coming on three years in August, and we recently this last show in May moved up to the three foot adult amateur hunters, and he placed in great company. He was absolutely fantastic and so we are getting ready to head to a horse show in um uh north texas kind of around the dallas area in a couple of weeks uh it'll be air conditioned (laughs) (laughs) um but he uh we're planning for him to make his national USHA uh derby debut there nice so congrats big score for the
3: thoroughbreds (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> timothy do you want to introduce our guest for today
2: yeah big month for caitlin and also a big month for jennifer kelly our guest we are honored to have her she's the author of sir barton and the making of the triple crown and her newly published book the foxes of bel-air it's about the triple crown winning father-son duo gallant fox in omaha fresh off the press just a couple weeks ago jennifer is yeah. one of the greatest authors historians researchers <laughs> and turf writers covering the world of horse racing. She also has a monthly column in the racing biz called Backtracks that focuses on historic horses Bread right in the Mid-Atlantic. She has quite the resume and has done all of this in the last decade after pivoting from her career as a writing professor. So what a resume, mm-hmm. what a person. We are thrilled to have you, Jennifer. How are you doing today?
0: Thank you. I'm great. How are you guys? Other than hot, <laughs> I think we're all doing okay.
3: Jennifer, it was so good to finally meet you in person at Derby this year. I felt like uh, kind of a a fangirl having like (laughs) followed your journey from afar and you know you're very active on Twitter in a very positive sense and so you're kind of a a shining light and I'm I'm really excited to learn more about your journey as a writer and for you to you know maybe uh, share a little bit about both of your books and you know uh, some triple crown facts
0: yeah so I will honestly meeting you and you know other turf riders and other people who are covering the sport I was that was my like celebrity moment at derby of like I know this person I know this person and you know and other people like there's Patrick Mahomes and there's this person i was like no there's a niece you know, there's, you know, this person this person. I was like, I came home, my husband's like, You are a nerd. I was like, well, these are the people that I love interacting with and you know, following people on like you guys on Twitter. So I'm I'm happy to be here. Thank you.
3: Well that is so cool. I actually honestly though, for having followed you for a while, uh, I don't know a lot about your journey of how you got involved in racing. And deciding to write two horse racing books. I mean, I know we talked briefly about it at Derby, but share that journey with us.
0: Well, I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama, so it's not like yeah, I come to it naturally necessarily. Uh, My fifth grade teacher, who I connected with a couple weeks ago, which was lovely, had read The Black Stallion to my class, and then I, of course, being an avid reader, had. Decided I must own all the Black Stallion books, and so I would torture my parents continuously with "Please take me to the bookstore. I need to buy all these books." And then this was about the time uh, when, like, video rental stores became a thing. So I would, you know, on Friday, Mom, Dad, for going to the video store, can I rent the Black Stallion? And my parents summarily got tired of me asking and <laughs> bought the movie on VHS. That's how old I am. And then uh, <laughs> later I just, you know, started writing letters and this is pre-Google. So if you wanted to find out info, you wrote letters and, you know, I just fell in love with the sport. This was right around the time that winning colors and Sunday silence won the Derby in 88, 89. So seeing that, and then my first experience going to a racetrack in 89, when one of my aunts took me to the Birmingham race course, I was done, but I never thought of it as a career path, because it was never presented to me as this is an option for you because of where I grew up. And I didn't know about things like the racetrack industry program at University of Arizona and, you know, all that stuff. So I actually just stayed a fan, but spent my, you know, college and, and graduate school life being a writing pro- professor, I wanted to teach writing, because I had had such an, you know, love for writing and reading growing up and then when i got burned out teaching is when i switched streams and my husband said where do you want what do you want to do if you weren't doing this and i was like well i would really like to do and i named off a couple of projects including sir Barton. and he was like why don't you just see if someone else has done that and then if they have it you do it and i was like okay? And then (laughs) with all the hubris of a writer, I was like, why not me? And that's, you know, 2014, I quit my job and and switched to writing about horse racing full-time. And it's been a journey. (laughs) Let's put it that way. Like, you guys know me now, but that was like years of building up to the point that I'm at now. So at first, it was just me alone in my office going, will anybody care what I'm writing about? And then, yeah. And now I'm here with two books. So... (laughs) (laughs)
2: and and both of your books are are these comprehensive pieces um that had not you know been done before what's that like i guess researching and like finding all the information that you need to write them because they are you know so just chock full of detail
0: well the nice thing about writing about lives is that biographies by themselves lend you a beginning middle and end So there's not this, how do I structure a narrative that's that long? Because if you've read anything that's long form like that, you know, it's, it takes a lot of work to sustain a thread over time. So the nice thing about Sir Barton and Gallup Fox in Omaha was that we have a beginning, they're born, a middle, they race, and an end, stud career, and ultimately when they pass. And so that is, informs the structure of the books and then by you know the next job is to fill in the details and so because these three had not had long form narratives written so there are books out there i'm sure you guys have read them you know the most glorious crown um, lucky 13 other books about the triple crown and each horse gets a chapter and so you get 10 15 pages whatnot about each horse so you have a basic overview of what they did but you don't have the depth of the detail that's really necessary to telling that story and therein lies the challenge of doing a book like this especially doing a barton because it was so long ago and accessing the material was a huge challenge so there are archives out there like the daily racing form archive from the university of kentucky that were integral to this the keeneland library And I cannot stress enough how valuable the Keeneland Library is because if I can't buy it secondhand or find it in an archive, I can go to the Keeneland Library, I can roll in, and they all—they know me really well by now, and they can put their hands on it almost immediately. If not immediately, they know where to find it. And then, of course, there's other archives like newspapers.com and... There's this, and I, I have more books than I have bookshelves at the moment, so I have this insane library of <laughs> books that I have collected over time, secondhand mostly, that are a lot of my fallbacks too. But that's kind of just a really like, basic overview of doing the research on something as involved as these two books.
3: I, I want to chime in and ask about the Keeneland Library because, mm-hmm. or at least give them another shout out because they, I work from home for Amplify, mm-hmm. love my home office, but sometimes mm-hmm. you have to switch up your space to keep the creativity moving and flowing. And, you know, I've always been aware of the Keeneland Library and, you know, the fact that it's an amazing resource for the industry, but... I never really went in and uh, engaged much with the the library itself, and now I've kind of started using it as my second workspace where I go and collaborate with my coworker twice a week. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's this beautiful setting and has tremendous resources about the industry. They've done an amazing job of you know, creating all of these digital archives and digitizing tons of resources, which is really important in the preservation sense. And then for people who are researching, not just in Kentucky, not just in the US, but around Mm -hmm. the world, they, like you said, Jennifer, are able to, you know, pull a lot of that information and share it so that it's accessible to everyone. So that's so cool. I'm really excited to hear that you've interacted with them because our next Amplify tour coming up in June is actually of the Keeneland library uh, so. that is that's is literally
0: I think the place I've spent the most time when I'm in Lexington I have spent. Hours and I'm I don't even I can't even think I can calculate at this point how many hours I've spent there. I've done two full week residencies with them where I was a writer in residence and it was a full forty hours wow. of just working in the library, and and I think if you've never been, so if you've got listeners who've never been to Lexington but they have the opportunity to go to Keeneland, they absolutely should make the Keeneland Library a wonderful spot to go into. It's not a, li- a lending library where you go in and can borrow the books, but you can go in there and you know they've got a full run of Daily Racing Forum and they've got a full run of Blood Horse dating back a hundred years. They've got Thoroughbred Record and Turf and Sport and just, just about anything you can think of that if you're, whether you're a Bloodstock agent, a pedigree expert, a turf rider, or you're just a fan. And I shouldn't say just fan, you are a fan and you have a question they will answer it and they will be able to point you toward you know a photograph even like i i, I most of my photographs like 90 percent of them come from caitland and it's just it's a wonderful place i highly recommend next time you're in lexington if you're not local to the area to, to visit it's a wonderful place to go and i, I have a table in the corner that's mine <laughs> like they know that's where i work is this table in the corner yeah
3: <laughs> Gotta that's have your amazing. Spot. go ahead caitlin
4: Uh, I was just going to say, that's amazing. It just brings back like memories of um, good memories (laughs) of college research days. And uh, it sounds like a dream job in a lot of ways, but definitely a lot of time and energy spent. I mean, what my question or a question I have is, how do you just how do you tackle all of that research?
0: Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think because I spent so long I was a double major in college. I was in English and French. So I spent many semesters doing a lot of research for the type of work I was doing. And then the same with graduate school. It involved a lot of research for the types of papers and things I was working on. That it doesn't it's like old hat to me now. Like I just do it. Um it is a fun task to tackle when, for example, I was doing foxes, in the 1930 Derby is the very first one where they use the starting gate. Okay, well, it's not the starting gate you and I are familiar with. This is a starting gate that predates that. And it's called the Waite starting gate. And I, I think the gentleman that invented it was called, was named Charles Waite. <laughs> So then it's like a Google search. Okay, so I want to find out more about the weight starting gate. Well, Google's not immediately helpful. I did find the patent for the the starting gate, which was nice because it provided uh, dimensions, not, however, provide photographs, (laughs) which was problematic. And then you get into, okay, so if I know the name of the starting gate and I know they used it in 1930, how much did they use it? And then that turned into a newspapers.com search a daily racing form archive search trying to get more information and just mine details from the small usually in passing mentions of starting gates because that was not the only one that was being tested at the time and that's the the research that I tackle like sure you know Gallant Fox ran in the Kentucky Derby and I can find a thousand newspaper articles about that and i would i would take an entire day maybe longer to go through each article to see if there was something other than ap wire reports that would lend to details that helps me with setting and making sure i've covered you know the feeling of the day and all that stuff but that's legit what writing is about it's just finding these wonky threads that you have to trace because you know that if you don't there's some detail that you might miss that's going to lend to evoking the feeling of that particular day in 1930 and this monumental race. And it's like, okay, that's why like this book took two and a half years. And that sounds like a long time, (laughs) but it really isn't. (laughs) So I was always shocked when I was, I like was done with it in two and a half years. It's like, really? I thought it would, take longer (laughs) so
3: I love your uh, use of the word like evoking the feeling because I feel like that's that's such an important part of writing is making sure that the person who is reading the work has confidence that the writer is going to put them there and did Mm -hmm. everything to help set the scene and you know really engaged as much as they could you know it's hard when you're writing a historical piece because it's not like you can be there and interview the person and you know especially when you get back to like 1919 and like the (laughs) 1930s you know it's hard to transport yourself there but you know I love that you can still write in a way that evokes that feeling and and you know put so much into research that You know, you're able to describe to readers, uh, you know, what that era was like. That's really cool. And emotion
4: Uh, is such an integral part of horse racing mm -hmm. that if you're not able to evoke emotion with writings on a, you know, the writing on a page, then there's, it's going to be very difficult to captivate an audience because Mm -hmm. that's, that's the feeling that they're looking for.
0: Well, that's what, you know, people who are fans of the sport are not just there for the bare facts. They're there for the feeling of, I watched Secretariat when, for example, the 1973 Belmont Stakes, either you were there or you're watching it on TV, and my mom, who is not a horse racing person, but still remembers when Secretariat won, and she will talk about that feeling. And it's, if I can capture as much feeling in context as possible in telling the narrative then I will do that I will I will I will go to any length I can to make sure I I can evoke as much feeling as possible
3: Jennifer as we wind down this episode I want to bring (laughs) it back what was that already I know that went so fast we really it's really hard Yes. Uh, when, when it's like, we almost have to have one guest per episode when we're trying mm-hmm. to pack in all the guests, because I already know that we could do a follow-up episode with you, but yeah, coming... I was going to say, we yeah. definitely have to do a 45 minute <laughs> yeah. just
4: episode dedicated to revisiting with Jennifer writing okay. and
3: researching <laughs> workshop, anytime. But going back to that theme of, you know, it being triple crown season, mm-hmm. uh, you know, how different is the Triple Crown today from the first running in, what, 1919, when it was like the first official Triple Crown series? But see, back then, it wasn't called that.
0: They would just happen to be three races that were stakes races that were, you know, prominent because of their purses, mostly, but... Um, the Derby and the Preakness were sort of in this arms race for money and trying to keep people engaged and going. And the Preakness is really building its reputation then. And the Belmont, even though the Belmont was not as lucrative as the other two, still ha- had that reputation because of New York racing and because of the tradition. So for Sir Barton to do it in 1919, it was just, these are three races that he happened to win, but it set the stage because everyone who Was there with, like, oh, well, if we do this, this, and this, then there's a lot of money involved. And then that captures the eye of people who want to copy that because they want to, you know, follow in those footsteps and do the same thing. And so from the money comes the prestige. And then from continued prestige comes more money and more horses and more people interested in in being a part of it. So he really sets the stage because he makes it doable. In a time when no one had really done it, he, done, he demonstrates that, okay, well, if I win these this one and then this two and then this three races, then that lends a level of prestige and credibility that other horses had not had to that point. And it builds on what Matt Wynn and William Riggs and other people involved in the sport at the time were trying to do in that era post-World War I as we're getting into one of the golden ages of racing.
2: And how has that kind of shaped like or changed your perspective maybe like knowing you know all this knowledge that you have, how has that kind of like shaped your perspective on the Triple Crown, you know, to what like American Pharaoh and Justify in recent years have done?
0: Well, as a as a racing fan, American Pharaoh and Justify I think my sister and my children were both very concerned when American Pharaoh won because I spent a good like two hours after he won crying. <laughs> it was so long like so long waiting so long for this to happen it was like just like tears like oh my gosh I'm so excited but then as a a scholar it was nice because it was like okay I know people are going to remain interested in this topic and they're going to want to continue to have these stories and so I looked at it as like this is an opportunity to, to revisit this topic the origin of it and to understand why when Pharaoh did it and then when Justify did it, it meant so much. Because if you're not, if you were born after nineteen seventy eight, all you knew was no triple crown winner. And then suddenly we've had two in in less than a decade. And it's like, okay, well, but why? why does this so meaningful? And I was glad to be able to have those conversations with people about why it was so meaningful and to really get people interested in the origin of it all so that they can see how it became meaningful to, to our culture as sport and to our culture as, you know, a country.
3: Jennifer Kelly, thank you so (laughs) much for joining us today. And I yes. can't wait to Thank read you. your books. I've already started putting together my uh, summer reading <laughs> list. I really need to, it's getting very long. So I need yes. to start tackling it early so we can get through. But this seems like really good Saratoga porch reading. Yes. yes An- I hope
4: uh, Anise, you have to share your list on social media. You should. Ooh, okay,
3: definitely. It might involve a couple plant books. I can't guarantee they're all horse racing <laughs> books, but I will share it
0: awesome well thank you guys i appreciate the opportunity to talk with you thank you so much
4: jennifer can't wait to have you back on i feel like we could talk for hours (laughs) yeah i have
0: that talent
2: (laughs) yeah thanks jennifer
0: thank you guys hey guys welcome
3: back to section two of the podcast part two we'll say and I'm excited to introduce someone who I have known for quite a long time I met him when I was actually before I interned for phasing tip day when I was working for the Saratoga special owner and bloodstock agent Ramiro Restrepo who. Uh, very excitingly, just won the Kentucky Derby with Mage as a co-owner. So Ramiro, we're pumped to have you on. Thanks for joining us.
1: No, Anise, thank you guys for having me on, and uh look forward to the to the
3: conversation. So as as we were discussing before we started recording like how I introduce you I reflected on the fact that you are a, a man of many things like you kind of do it all in the industry I see you everywhere I think we've all seen you everywhere in some capacity you're involved in sales and ownership but you have a really cool story of how you were brought up and into the industry. And I'd love for you to to share more about that and how your family was involved and, and how your love for racing grew.
1: Sure. Um, it's definitely been, been quite an interesting journey. Uh, probably the most non-traditional of many of my you know counterparts that are also in the industry as well. Um I'm not from Kentucky, which is, you know, our racetrack mecca, and my parents or family, for as much as they had uh, a lot of years of contribution to the game, it's not like they ever achieved some, you uh, know, top level success or, you know, uh, came from this generational uh, wealth of success in our business. Um, horse racing was instilled in me. I, you know, from the time I could crawl as a passion uh, due to the familial you know connection th- that it brought with my grandfather, my uncle's um, my mother a- 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 and obviously she brought my father into the business but um the way that I got to where I am today has been has been a lot of twists and turns uh my my mother's side of the family. Has been in racing for for four generations. I would be a fifth generation horseman. Uh, they were in Colombia, South America, which up until the late '60s uh, they had a thoroughbred industry. But then the main land where the biggest racetrack was was sold for the Pan American Games, and it's kind of interesting. You kind of see some parallels now, like Arlington closed down and that, and that land was sold to the chicago bears mm-hmm. um and other racers and like hollywood park was shut down for the for the football stadium that's there now so the the the, the mainland in, in in columbia um was sold for the pan-american games and my grandfather who had done everything from being a, a breeder a horse breeder, a jockey, an owner, a trainer, along with his brothers uh, as well. And his and some of his nephews and two of his sons, they decided to move to America in the late 60s. And, you know, coming over without being able to speak English in the late 60s as to coming over now in the you know, 2010s or 2020s, totally different climate. Uh, the, the accessibility, the acceptability, Uh, and the opportunities themselves completely 180 degrees so having to come over here and really hit the reset button they had to work their way up from the most entry-level positions uh, uh, hot walkers group grooms uh, up to foremen into assistant trainers to finally having their own uh, stable uh, as trainers and then owning a couple horses. Uh, and that was my grandfather and his two sons, my my, my two uncles. Uh my mother was the youngest of the group, she was twelve. So she actually was afforded the opportunity to go to high school here, go to college here, enter the professional world, met my father. So I was lucky that of all the you know, my grandfather's children, I was born under his daughter. In a different light, I was very fortunate that m- when my mom got my dad into the business, we got in as horse owners. So for myself, uh, I was a little spoiled in that regard. you know uh, I was able to see horse from a different from a different perspective. and um, my mother neg- my, my uncles and my grandfather basically negotiated with my mom to allow me to spend summers at Saratoga. So middle school, high school i got to you know i learned how to you know play the horses and, and be a horse player when i was nine ten years old uh, <laughs>
3: <laughs> sorry uh, i always have, have to laugh at that because i'm always window. like hey kids betting age is like 18 plus but so many people come on and they're like yeah i started betting when i was in fifth grade
1: <laughs> you know what's amazing was my grandpa would take me to the window and tell the the the, the, the guy at the, at, the, at the window this is my grandson He's gonna make my, my bets for me, so I would put in my grandfather's bets, but then make my own bets at the same time. So, it's I, I learned to read the racing form before I learned to read in school. I learned the alphabet and how to form sounds to letters with jockeys' names. So like Don Macbeth, Angel Cordero, Prado Baeza, uh, you know Sandy Holly. And then some of the 80s, these Nick Santagata, Frank Lavada, these were all old, old 80s jockeys uh, from New York. And I would, and I would read those programs, and that's how I learned to read. It was at the like track reading the form, and then learning how to read the racing form itself. So crazy. So as a child, rather than having coloring books or comic books or watching cartoons, horses. the the racing form, the the racing almanacs, and the blood horse, you know, the the, the thoroughbred times. uh, Those were my, like, things that I read as a kid and watched as a kid. So, like, I developed this attachment to racehorses and famous racehorses of the 80s as my Superman, He-Man, Spider-Man cartoons, and the jockeys and the trainers and, you know, the silks of all these famous owners were like, you know, they're so bright and the colors and such, they created that attachment to like Superman's S or Spider-Man's, you know, uh, Spider-Web with the blue and and red, or, you know, Wolverine with the yellow and blue. And, you know, you you start making these attachments as a child to the colors of the silks. and, And that's why like the Phipps black and red and Claiborne Farms, you know, yellow orange I mean, Harborview Farm, which owned the firm, the pink and black, like that's why those bright things kind of caught your attention as a kid. You know, um, when you pair that with being around, being able to spend time around your uncles and your and your grandfather and, and run around the barn and, and, you know, just be a part of the team, whether it was hot walking, changing bandages, uh, helping with the feed in the afternoons, uh, you know, little things around the barn, but being around some pretty cool high profile barns that they were working for, and and seeing a lot of famous horses in the mornings, all these things were, you know, just its like making like a jambalaya, you're adding all these ingredients in there from such a young age, it just when it starts simmering up to a boil, like, that's just passion and this attachment and this love. So how people would follow the Yankees, or, you know, the Boston Celtics or, you know, whatever team that's been around for a long time in many sports, what I followed was horse racing. So, like, derbies and Breeders' Cups and, uh, as I got older, Super Saturdays at Belmont, these big days of racing, those were, like, the big event days. You know, so if if someone who loves sports and follows, like, rivalries and playoff games and 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 big events, my, my calendar as a fan of sports, of horse racing sports was those big days. So I created this following and this obsession, which later on when you're reading pedigrees and when you're looking at bloodlines and, and, you know, first them, second them, third them on a catalog, I'm like, wait a minute. I, I saw these horses run. I was a fan of these or I knew the brother or the sister. So it's crazy how so many years later, all these things that were, Tossed into this uh, boiling pot came to play in my life later on. But uh, when I was in high school, my parents got out of the business. They divorced <clears throat> and got out of the business. So there was probably a good uh, 10 years there where we had no familial involvement under my mother's, uh, under my, my mother and I. But my uncles remained very small trainers at Finger Lakes and at you know belmont aqueduct i'm talking about maybe you know five to ten horses in their barn and you know they were you know they, they were there as old as the eighth pole you know like they were they were just these guys that were low percentage trainers just you know hustling to get by and um you know it's not that my family had some amazing success winning great stakes races but just dedicating their life and their time you know to this labor of love of horse racing. Uh, my grandpa worked 60, you know, 50, 60 years in the New York Racing Association uh, circuit, and my uncles, you know, put another 50 years in themselves and uh, horse racing never left my side, you know, it was, it was either it was the familial attachment, or later on, it just became like I was such a super obsessed fan of it that I could never let it go. Even when I, you know, went went through college and worked in the in my in my own professional career path, horse racing was always by my side. Uh, so I, I'm 44 years old right now, and when I turned 30, my uncle approached me with the opportunity to buy a horse at Aqueduct because it was winter time. It was 20 December, 2017, uh, 2007, it was winter time. And there was a grass horse of Philly who had run three times on the grass. And since there's no grass racing in the winter, he's like, look, the trainer can't afford her. We can buy her for $5,000 and I can bring her to Florida and run down there at Tampa or, or a Gulf stream and run her on the grass and i think she's got some potential so at at the age of 30 i bought my first racehorse for five thousand dollars he brought her down to tampa and in her second start for me in a maiden fifty thousand dollar race a mile and sixteenth on the grass at tampa at 18 to one odds she won and i lost my mind i lost it i i and the thrill of winning a race. Was the second time you ever own a horse, she bought it for five thousand. She wins a maiden fifty thousand dollar claimer, and I went crazy. I mean, right then and there, I was converted. Like if I wasn't already a converted, like fully, the vampire bit my neck and drained yeah. me of like everything. Right then and there, you know, right there, I was hooked. So that was how I I uh, I got into horse racing from A to the entry level. <laughs>
3: That is such an awesome story, and I have to say, our guest that we had on before you um, was an author, and she actually talked about setting the scene. Caitlin, you maybe know the words that she used. I something about like uh, creating, you know, emotion in writing. Emotion, yeah, Yeah, invoking emotion, and you you're so good at that. Like your next thing, you need absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I was I was like. Getting super
4: excited when he was talking about <laughs> losing his mind over the race that he won. That
3: was yeah. You evoked a lot of emotion there, and you have great imagery when you talk. So yeah, writing a book means to be on Ramiro's list.
1: <laughs> well, you so are true. More insane. The exercise rider who was riding my filly, the filly, my first horse ever. His car broke down on the way to tampa for the race so we didn't have a jockey so i had to call the racing office and they gave me the first jockey that was available and let's say we were running in the 10th race so i was like well let me go down to the paddock after the jockeys dismount and see where i can talk to this guy and introduce myself and let him know he's going to be running in my in my race you know he's gonna be riding my Philly in two races from now and when he gets off his horse he has walked over to the fence at Tampa and grabbed his newborn baby daughter. I think mean, she could have been five years old, five days old, and Aww. gave her a kiss and gave his, I don't know if that was his wife or his girlfriend or whatever, gave her a kiss. And I, and I, and I, I, I waited for him to walk towards the jockey's room. I introduced myself, and he was so grateful uh, to have the ride because, you know, you could tell he was just a journeyman that was, that was on the grind and uh when we got to the paddock my uncle told him just break out of there hold on to that fur and at the three furlong mark ask her for everything and she'll take you to the wire i mean it was the it was like it was almost this <laughs> this storybook explanation and he did it just like that he broke out of there put her in a good spot fifth the like three-quarter like the three-eighths pole he asked her and she swept five wide and rolled down the lane in one by two So everybody went bananas. I mean, it was just like hysteria. You're screaming, you're running around, you don't know who to hug. You know what I mean? People are calling you on the phone. You're you're just completely losing your mind. The jockey's in tears. Uh, He, if you look at the replay coming back, he throws up three times. I can't even imagine the stress this guy was under. You know, uh, it was just a, a a battle of emotions. So you know, it's crazy what horse racing can do for someone uh emotionally
2: mentally physically um if you could bottle the
1: feeling of winning in a race and sell it like a like a a water bottle or a coca-cola can i mean you'd be the wealthiest person on earth i mean that feeling never goes away if you're winning a maiden 50 if you're winning a claiming four thousand, or i mean heck here we are uh 15 years later and uh Unbelievably, I I I won a Kentucky Derby and 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 I and I lost my mind uh then there too. So it, it, it is an amazing emotional uh thing that this horse racing is.
3: I I don't want to skip over uh, a large chunk of your journey because I know there were probably a lot of steps between you know winning that first race to winning the Kentucky Derby, but you describing that first race reminded me a lot of America's best racing actually had you mic'd up for the entire day of the Kentucky Derby and produced this really impactful video of, you know, your emotions and feelings throughout the race and the people um, around you that entire day. And, you know, what it was like as Mage was coming down the stretch and, and your mom and several family members were there with you. And so, I don't know. What does that feel like to have come from winning that first race to then winning the Kentucky Derby?
1: Gosh, you know, at least like, uh after I won that race in you know, in, in OA, at the beginning of OA, I still would work in the, in my, in a professional career, uh, you know, in the beverage industry and, for various beverage companies as a, as a marketing manager and marketing coordinator. I mean, a lot of, it was just, a, it was a corporate, corporate jobs in the beverage world, but for, but for seven years, I would do that during the day and then dabbling in horse racing ownership on the side. And it wasn't until 2015. Well, maybe a little earlier, 2013, um, that I started putting together these small partnerships of horses with like fraternity brothers or good or good pals that I grew up with. And when I say small partnerships, I'm talking about buying horses for 10,000, 15,000, $30,000 spread out over five, six buddies. And the common theme was that whatever I was buying, whether I was claiming it in a claiming race or or dipping my toes at the at the horse auctions at the two-year-old sale auctions the common theme was that these horses were all w- w- would come out running like they'd win you know that we we take home we we we'd claim horses i would read the form and the horses would win uh i'd i I'd, I'd, I'd uh i'd buy horses for eighteen thousand, thirty thousand at the horse sales and they'd come out running so there was some kind of innate talent, ability. Um, you know, I can just point that it, it, it I guess it's, it's in, your, it's in my blood It's in my blood. It, it's like horses with their pedigrees, you know, my, my, my blood runs thick with the DNA of horsemen, you know, so there was some kind of, 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 of horse sense that was working because I, everything that we were doing at a high rate of success, for, for the level that I was competing in, we were doing well. So it gives you confidence as an individual that maybe this passion play, this passion project that you're doing is kind of going down the right path, you know, cause it's horse racing is a labor of love overall. You're going to lose way more than you win. And the lows are so low. Uh, but yet the highs Mount Everest can't even touch so it is a hollow roller coaster um, but if you're going to dedicate yourself to anything in this life you have to go all in believing in yourself and really having a one track mind that i'm going to make it i'm like, i'm going to do it and making a plan for yourself to say how can i keep climbing up the proverbial ladder by backing myself like how am i going to do this and uh The more little success that we have buying these lesser expensive, the you know, less expensive horses, and having a little bit of success, mm-hmm. it gave someone the, the confidence in me to give me a uh, hundred thousand dollars. They gave me a hundred grand to go buy them a, a two-year-old at OBS. It was the first time I ever had the chance to to, to buy a horse a at, a, at, a, at a public auction for a client, and it was just someone who kind of noticed me having success on a smaller scale in Florida. And uh, I bought that Philly was a first crop Cantaros Philly. And she ended up breaking her maiden first time out by nine lengths, went up to Saratoga, ran in a grade two, and actually was a multiple stakes placed Philly. So right there, I was like, you know, I never interned for anyone. I never worked on a farm. I never was taught the lay of the land by a professional bloodstock agent. Uh, everything that I knew was, 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 were observations of mine as a child, being around the barn and working those summers at Saratoga pointers that I picked up from my grandpa and uncles, always listening and watching and being observant. But everything that I've done has just been believing in myself and saying, to monetize my passion, how, how can I monetize my passion? So if I love horses, I love horse racing. I want to be able to buy horses. I want to race horses. You know, I have to, you know, I have to pitch my ideas to friends, family, business people that are willing to give me a chance to listen to me, and understand how passionate I am, and and that I'm going to put in the effort to try to buy a good horse. And little by little, I was able to gain. A, a, more and more people to support me and, and to believe in me and um, that those things kept happening you know step by step so in 2018 I bought a yearling for a hundred and sixty thousand dollars of which I sold him for eight hundred and fifty thousand dollars six months later and by the end of 2019 he ended up winning the Breeders Cup Juvenile Turf uh, the quote's name was Strucker and wow. Chad Brown, Jeff Brown, and Don Rachel, the the owners and the trainer, were so awesome because they they allowed me to be part of the, the journey. Like, they would they let me go see the horse in Saratoga before he debuted. I got to watch him train in Saratoga when he went to the Breeders' Cup in his third start. They let me have like paddock passes. I went back to the to the barn to see him. And when he won the Breeders' Cup, I was like, gosh, man, you know, I picked out a Breeders' Cup winner. Like, I. I know what I'm, it just further gives you the confidence that whatever you're doing is on the right path. And um, that continued a few years later when I joined forces with Gustavo Delgado. We were having conversation at the horse sales in Kentucky in, during the pandemic. And uh, he wanted to raise his profile as a, as a, as a horse trader, hoping to attract new clients, even though he had, had some success in America. He didn't feel that, you know, maybe he was able to touch enough doorknobs to open and myself as an aspiring bloodstock agent who little by little was trying to climb up the ladder uh, of opportunities to buy more horses. If we combined our forces together and work as a team, you know, um, we'd be able to, you know, to do, you know, to, to make some noise. So... The oldest of our purchases, which is four years old last year, gave us a little bit of a Derby, uh, thrill when he finished third in the fountain of youth, fifth in the Florida Derby and then fourth in the Pate mile on Derby days. So we kind of got a taste of having a horse sort of on the trail. And then when we went to this, to the yearling and two year old sales, which are now three year olds of this year, um, Mage was one of those purchases. So uh, no, you know, people might see, you know, you celebrating now an amazing Derby win. And of course it's a priceless, amazing moment to have achieved, you know, if not the Holy Grail, one of the Holy Grails of our, of our sport. But when you trace it back to my first $5,000 purchase, it's been a 15 year ride of whether part-time or full-time buying horses Going up the, the the price point ladder of of buying five thousand three thousand four thousand dollar horses up until now where you know I've been able to buy a couple six figure purchases and and have that have gone on to have some success so um, it's not just necessarily me sitting back and saying gosh you know how does it feel to go from the Tampa fifty to the Derby but I can take a brief second and look back for allow myself for the sake of this conversation and say, man, you know, that that's been a 15 year uh, grind and appreciate it. And, and, um, and, and, and really look back and say, you know, it it was well-earned. And Ramiro,
2: sorry, Anise. Yeah. Ramiro, like looking back, like you have, you know, come, you know, so far it's been a lot of hard work you know to get to this point obviously what advice would you have to someone who wants to be a bloodstock agent full time um you know but is just starting out with their you know an aspiring bloodstock agent
1: what advice do I have to them
2: mm-hmm. yeah
1: so, so I've so since since my path to being a bloodstock agent is probably uh, out of 100 potential, uh, routes to get there. It's probably the 100th, like the, it's the, it's the least, uh, most common route. Cause I, uh, you know, many people who are passionate about bloodstock, they, they love to read pedigrees, uh, for them being able to research the statistics of, uh, of pedigrees and the statistics of bloodlines. And, um, or those who love the actual, you know, horse itself. Maybe they come from other horse disciplines, or just grew up big fans of horse racing. Find the the, 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 the romantic idea of being a bloodstock agent to maybe, you know, play to their to their interest levels, or you know, it's a it's a it, it's a very difficult position because one you need capital. Number one. If not, you're playing fantasy football. It's just like you'll always look back at a horse that you might have liked and you'll say, oh, I wish I could have bought this horse, you know, Uh, but that does nothing for yourself professionally. It's a sport that very quickly by the horse's performances on the track or if you're buying to sell like what we call pin hooking, uh, if you lose a lot of money, or your horses don't resell well or perform on the racetrack, immediately you won't have anyone that will want you to be their bloodstock agent. So it is very black and white. And you have to be prepared to handle that failure, which comes in droves. And you have to be prepared to participate as a bloodstock agent, which is having capital yourself or being able to raise capital or to find someone that is willing to allow you to buy courses for them. Now that's once you, that's once you decided to become a bloods like bloods like agent, but the process to become one, you know, being able to intern uh, at a farm at the racetrack with, with trainers where you learn more of the, finer points of the thoroughbred physical and uh, how successful thoroughbreds look like and what are some um, ideal physical characteristics that the the more successful or high quality thoroughbreds possess are things that you can learn from while interning or working at, at, at one of the big farms in Kentucky or working at a racetrack for for a trainer who's, uh, you know, hopefully had some success, or interning for an existing bloodstock agent, who is quite prominent in his field or her field, and learning from them, you know, and and once you feel comfortable, you know, it's like an aspiring, uh, you know, uh, hedge fund or, or stockbroker or, or real estate agent, you know, like, you can learn, there's X amount of hours that you can put in to learn the craft, but in the end, it's a sink or swim business. You're just put out there in the ocean and, and, and you jump in and you're just told, S- swim home. Uh, you cannot sugarcoat the difficulty of, it, of what it is to be a bloodstock agent. Um, there's a lot of talented people that, are, that, that try to be bloodstock agents. There's a lot of talented people that aren't afforded the opportunity To buy it, to be a blessed again, because they don't have the the financing behind them to be able to capitalize on their purchases. So it's it is a tough go. You have to be. If there's anyone listening, they have to learn uh, to deal with the challenges that come with being it. But if you're able to be successful at it, it's it's an amazing passion to follow, and you can have an amazingly successful career if you're proven to have, you know, the, the, the touch to have success as a, as, a, as a bloodstock
2: agent.
3: Ramira, I'm glad that you spoke on that because, you know, at Amplify, we have a lot of young people who will reach out about specific careers. And I would say the number one most popular career that people reach out about to ask for advice on how to get started is becoming a bloodstock agent. And it's generally driven by a, a love of pedigrees, you know, somebody who really likes analyzing the statistics, as you mentioned. And I think that a lot of young people have sort of a misperception uh, that it's an easy way to make money fast, and it they could not be more wrong. And it is a tremendously challenging and skilled field to get into because not only do you have to be good at picking out horses you know having an eye for the horse but like you already reflected on you have to have the the backing or the capital to back yourself and so it's not something that I would deter a young person from pursuing if you're truly passionate about it but you did a really good job of highlighting how to gain that experience and the fact that it's not just a, I'm going to snap my fingers and I'm a bloodstock agent now. It's a, it's a long, slow growth process with a lot of learning curves involved. Uh, You know,
1: to even look, I'll I'll expand on, on, on the point that I just, I was about to start off with, but I'll bring it back one step before I get to that. Since I had no one to back me, in terms of a large existing client i had to say to myself who around me is willing to pool some money to believe in me to go buy a racehorse that i feel can be successful and then have that horse show and prove to then be able to show that example to the next person and i started out doing that by raising five thousand dollars raising $3,000, raising $4,000 and having horses win at the six thousand dollars level, at the $8,000 level, at the $12,500 $12, level. So there is no shame and there is no ego and there is no pride that because you're competing at that lower level, that, that that should be looked upon in a negative way or in a beneath way. There are great horses that win tons of races at that level that are cared for, are loved, and perform like rock stars, but at that level. And the key, when your capital restrains you from being able to buy these horses that you're seeing in catalogs that go for a lot of money, you have to go beyond the obvious and try to find the winning trait in those lower level horses that are then gonna be successful, but just at that lower level. That helps build your confidence as someone who is picking horses, because I don't want somebody to say, oh, well, I don't have any money, I can't be a bloodstock agent. Well, if you can't piece together 50,000, maybe you could piece together 25,000. And if you can't piece together 25,000, well, then you could piece together 10,000. If you can't do that five, you know, because there are going to be horses that are for sale or up for, you know, for claiming at that level. And as long as they're treated for, cared for and trained and put in the right position, they can be successful and win races for you. And that builds your confidence as a bloodstock agent that builds your resume, your, your book of business. And you, then can take that to the next step and grow your portfolio from there. So I never had anyone come in and say, Hey, let me be your sponsor, let me be your financial backer. I had to do everything from the ground up, buying you know, putting together these partnerships myself, starting off with friends, family, and then close business associates that were willing to just chip in and build the book of business from there. And even now, winning the Derby, it's not like there's 50,000 people knocking on your door saying, buy me horses, buy me horses, because there are tons of other successful people. And that's not to say that I haven't had some calls and some opportunities haven't, you know, opened themselves up since winning the Derby. It's not all doom and gloom either. But it's a highly competitive field where there's tons of really smart people successful people and people who are and, and people who have a great knack at acquiring capital to uh, get opportunities to play so there's tons of competition in this field and those you know who are amplified listeners that are uh and at a younger demographic obviously than i than, than i am even though my my brain thinks he's 25 uh <laughs> You have to understand the mountain that there is to climb. You know, um, it, it is quite the challenge. But if you do stick stick with it, if you do have talent, if you do have ability, if you are able to grow your your your, your business and and become a bloodstock agent and have success, it's the greatest job in the world because it takes you to places. Domestically, there's horse sales and horse races all around the world, and Fortunately for myself, especially in the last eight years, gosh, I've been able to do a bloodstock business, not only in, 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 uh, in picking resources to buy, but I've been able to, to buy and sell stallions, broodmares, horses of racing age, obviously foals and yearlings and two-year-olds to, to, to resell, aka pinhook, to, 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 to race in over 12 countries. Uh, And I've traveled to racing jurisdictions, gosh, all over the world. You know, I've been to Glorious Goodwood, I've been to Royal Ascot, I've been to the championships in Australia, I've been to the Saudi Cup, Dubai World Cup multiple times, I've been to the Latin American championships in Argentina, Chile, Uruguay, Brazil, Panama, Puerto Rico. Uh, It's been an amazing ride. I mean, the the friendships that I've formed, the relationships that I've developed, uh, the horses that I've seen—it's—it's it, it's been a beautiful thing, uh, being able to, you know, to make this a career and a and a and a, and a livelihood. It, it it is an amazing thing. I mean, it's like saying I want to be James Bond, you know. But a lot of people want to do it, and you have to really hear the challenges that anyone who's aspiring to be it has to learn the challenges that come along with it. But to know that even someone who was the biggest outsider in terms of getting a start into the sport can make it. And therefore, you know, hopefully there's a listener out there who 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 takes notice and, 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 and has that kind of you know same success on their end.
3: Ramiro, this has been awesome. Oh, I don't think you even yes. need us here to like ask questions because <laughs> you're so insightful at just like letting the conversation flow. So seriously, that is awesome.
1: <laughs> cool man. um um you know, it's always interesting to me when I when when I heard about you know, the Amplify program because since we don't have like a national jurisdiction or a national league, much like all the other countries in the world with horse racing, you know, you see in the, we're so fractured in terms of organizational leadership, you see several organizations trying to tackle certain topics. And it's like trying to hug a tidal wave, you know, it's almost impossible. And it's tough that since we don't have everything under one umbrella, that one umbrella could have all these different programs targeting, developing, and taking care of existing uh, groups and topics and and issues of the moment. So, one of the glaring, you know, groups that horse racing is always trying to Attract and develop and mentor and explain is that next generation of people and uh, of horse fans of of horse racing participants in whether they're on the industry side or on the horse playing side or on the fan side or whatever. So uh, the amplify program, the amplify program, uh, was something that you know I, I when I read about it, I thought it was very cool, and um, I'm glad that if you know, not only this conversation, but anything else that I could, you know, lend uh, my time to, or why not? It, it's just it's such a it's such an, a, 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 a just an important and and, and, and core uh, you know group that that should have someone to lend their thoughts and 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 and, and 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 whatever advice they might be able to give. So I thank you for having young.
3: Thank you so much for joining. Thank you for so much. Yeah,
4: I really appreciate it. this. Was you. so special, especially this month with so much going on, um, in the wake of everything. I'm still. I'm sure that you're still, uh, pinching yourselves that a time <laughs> and fielding, fielding <laughs> calls and texts and well wishes and whatnot. No, it, it's
1: it's been a crazy ride. It's been, uh, you know, the first. Derby week was fantastic. And then obviously winning the race was, was, was insane. And, you know, the thing is that you just don't have no time to really sit back as the preakness rolls up right on you. And you're nothing prepares you for that level of intensity and scrutiny and and uh, and uh, attention. You know, and nothing, nothing can prepare you to that. So it's quite a bit. And then from there you go right into a horse sale where you have to devote all your time, energy, and focus to try to find the next, you know, nice horse. And we were able to buy two at the, at the May phase of Tipton Timonium cell, which is the same cell where we had bought H age last year. I flew home last Wednesday and, you know, just kind of have given myself a week to power up and, and, and recharge and kind of like, you know, circle the wagons. But at the same time, life goes on and you, you have to kind of, Get back on the horse. So there's no, you know, there's no, there's no more vacation. It's time to kind of get back on it and and uh, move forward because yearling sales are coming up. There's actually some more two-year-old sales this month, and you know, this traveling gypsy circus performers that we are keeps going. You know, like we, you know, we're, we're, we we keep on it doesn't stop for you. So I gave myself a good week and. And now we're back at it. So uh, anytime you guys ever want to chat, whether it's on a call or there's an individual person who has a question, you know, Anise, you were one of the first people to ever write an article on me when you were with the, with with, uh, with the paper in Saratoga when I had started with Facing Tipton, you know, with a focus on the Latin American clientele, and I and, and you were one of the first people to ever pay to two two pages of attention to me so that was pretty cool
3: that's so awesome I remember the first time meeting you I was like wow he has the coolest job ever yeah. and <laughs> and then we it was such a a long detailed interview that Tom Law was like you should probably just make this into a and a and just like maintain it in its entirety because it was you know there was so so many great things that you had to say that You know, it turned out to be a really good piece and um and I think readers really enjoyed it. So it's kind of a cool full circle moment for me to have you back on here and you know, we will definitely connect you with any young people who have follow up questions on this episode. I think this was an incredibly informational piece and you know, we're we're cheering for you. I'm excited to see where Mage goes from here and uh and you are, are always welcome with Team Amplify. We're rooting for you.
1: Very cool. Thank you, Caitlin, Timothy, Anise. Thank you guys for having me on, for sure.
3: Thank you, Ramiro. Thank you so Thanks, much, Ramiro. Ramiro. Have a great day. Bye.
2: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Amplify Horse Racing Podcast.
3: Be sure to check out our website, www.amplifyhorseracing.org, and follow us on social media on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube for more of our content.
4: If you have any podcast ideas, please email us at info at amplifyhorseracing.org.
2: We'll catch you next time.